Hosea chapter 2, and I want to review just a little bit as, as we look at it. Just like the nation Israel, you know, was, was so greatly loved of God. Uh, and how do we repay the Lord sometimes? You, know, you can see the parallels here, and there are two parallels that you need to get from the book of Hosea. One is the intended parallel, and one is the intended parable, and that is of Israel and its ultimate salvation in Christ Jesus, and we're going to really see that over these next couple of weeks. The other is the parallel between us, the bride of Christ, and our Savior Jesus. Because think about where you were when the Lord came after you. Think about what you did initially. I can remember uh, when I got saved, there was a period of time that I was just like on fire. And, you know, if there was if there was something happening at the church, if I had to walk, I'd get there. But then the reality of the battle comes in and all of a sudden the things start happening that normally happen in our walks. And the enemy comes in to try and kill and maim and destroy, as he always does. Uh, he's not going to give you up easy when you make a fresh commitment to the Lord. And, and then sometimes we repay the Lord uh, with rebellion and indifference and contempt. And in our story, as we saw in chapter 1, that's exactly what Gomer had done. Here Hosea comes and he says, you know what, I will take you as my bride. Now think of this. This is, you know, it's a modern equivalent. It's a rather seedy story if you look at it in that way. The modern equivalent is, you know, some Christian guy who's maybe serving in ministry even because Gomer's a, or Hosea's a prophet, so let's, let's make him a pastor. Some pastor of some church, we'll even go all the way, we'll, a Calvary pastor. A Calvary pastor decides that God's spoken to him and he's going to go down to some house of prostitution in Las Vegas and find himself a wife because God told him to. I mean, this is a tough, tough, tough situation to put anybody into, much less somebody who proclaims to have the mouthpiece of God as his, as his vocation. And so I'm pretty sure that Hosea was very sure that God had spoken. And in doing so, you kind of expect the results that you could expect when God is at work. And that is, well, of course Gomer's going to give up her way of life. Uh, of course she's not going to go back and do that anymore. Of course she's just going to see the grace of God in action, and she's just going to be happy homemaker, and she'll be right there alongside of Hosea's side. And the very first thing she does is go right back to what she was doing before. But before you judge her, think about your own life. How many times has God had to rescue you, rescue me, come after us? We know the truth. We've been set free by that truth. We've walked in that truth even for a period of time. And all of a sudden, we're going after the false gods. We're going the wrong direction. So there is a lesson here, and we're going to see it big time next week, on, on the love of God, the grace of God. We're going to see that begin in tonight's study. But as we get there, we, we see this incredible window of grace that, that happens really uh, in chapter 1. And so the, the kids, and I want to again remind you, because they're going to get a name change one day. Uh, and that's going to begin tonight. So the, the three kids are Jezreel, which means may God scatter. It can also mean, may God sow. It, and lo rumaha means that you're not beloved. And it can also mean, you are mine. Depends on if you drop the low or not. 
Nations, uh, the nation's heart is just wicked. And so low ami means you're not my people and I'm not your God. But it can also mean if you drop the low, it can mean you're mine. That's the way God works. And, and so as we embark on this journey of going through this book, keep in mind the parallels. One is the actual story of how this man of faith just continues to endlessly love this amazing woman whom God has given him. And this amazing woman is a real piece of work. And it could have been the other way around. I don't know why it wasn't a, you know, flip-flopped and one gender, you know, flip it around. It doesn't matter. Be very careful not to genderize this particular story because there's an awful lot of unfaithful guys too. But as we look at this, one kind of wonders what happens to these poor kids. What, what happens to this little boy, this little girl who are disowned? Where, where do they end up? What, what happens? But I can tell you what Hosea does. And Hosea is a picture of Jesus. Hosea wraps his arms around those little kids and says, you know what? I'm going to take in. I don't care what your mom's doing. I'm going to live with that part of it, but I'm going to fulfill what God's called me to do, and I'm going to be a God of love. And so ultimately, in the parallel to what will happen with the Jewish people, eventually they're going to stop messing around, and they're going to come back to the Lord. And we're going to see that kind of unfold here in chapter 2. And so tonight, we'll pick up in verse 1 of chapter 2, and let's pray. Father God, thank you for the times that, that we've run away. Lord, thank you for the times that we've turned back to our own vomit and you've come after us. Thank you for the times that we were wandering as sheep on a hillside and you brought us into the sheepfold. Lord, thank you for your grace that cries out to us and reaches out. Lord, finds us where we are, brings us in. Lord, thank you that you will never leave us or forsake us. Thank you that those who are called by your name you will not cast out. Lord, thank you that your grace is sufficient. God, we bless you. We ask that you'd use this passage of Scripture tonight to bring truth into our lives. We bless you. We praise you. We ask this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. And so verse 1, the kids are in view for us, and it says, Say to your brethren, my people. So it becomes very obvious who he's talking to. Say to the Jewish people, my people, Hosea's people, and to your sisters, mercy is shown. Isn't that how God always reacts to the things that go on in our life? Because if he reacted all the time in judgment, we're dead. Amen? Amen? I, I, I can think of a few things today. I, I, I was sitting in my office and... You know, I'm I'm not a big fan of really loud Harleys anyway, because it's just there's something about the sound. It really hurts my ears. And a guy decided he was going to park outside of my office and just throttle that thing for about 10 minutes. Just, you know, and I'm like. Can't say that. Nope, can't say that either. That's not good. That no. Because he may chase me up here and see Pastor Jeff on my door. That would not be good. You know, I was just thinking, I go, man, I, mercy wasn't the first thing I was thinking of. Amen? Aren't you glad that God thinks of mercy first? 
not giving us what we deserve. Because if he didn't, if God didn't think of mercy first and grace first and love first, there would not be a saved person on this earth. There would never have been a saved person because that's exactly what he did with Adam and Eve. Amen? Adam and Eve have it good. They are living the high life in the Garden of Eden. They don't have a care in the world. They're not punching a clock. They're not worried about their 401k. They're they're happy as clams. I, I didn't know that clams were happy, but evidently clams are very happy. They're happy clams. And what do they do? They find a way to biff it. They find a way to turn the really good thing into something terrible. Amen? That's us. It's the way we are. It's the way humankind is. And on God's mind, on Hosea's mind, is mercy. Mercy is shown. Bring charges against your mother. Bring charges. For she's not my wife, nor am I her husband. He says, you know what? I'm going to show her mercy. I'm not going to ignore the sin, however. Very important you get this early on in this chapter. I'm not ignoring the sin. I'm not turning a blind eye to the sin. The sin's going to have its consequences, but I'm still going to do the right thing. Family of God, sin always has its consequences. Always has its consequences. Let her put away from her harlotries, from her sight. Let her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and expose her as in the day she was born. I will make her like a wilderness and set her in a dry land and slay her with thirst. I will not have mercy on her children, for they are the children of harlotry. He he says there are consequences that are going to come into your life because of the things that you're going to do. He says, I I want to show mercy. Here's what I'd like to do. But you got to turn. You have to do your part. If you want God's mercy and God's grace, you need to repent of your sin. If you want his justice and judgment, you can keep going the direction you're going. It's always been that way. It will always be that way. It has never been any different. Now, praise God, he is mercy first and he's judgment last. But he still is a holy God. And so he begins to give us a a picture of what will ultimately one day happen uh, in that passage there in Romans 11 that says one day all Israel will be saved. As you all know, we were in Israel a couple of months ago. And uh, as you look at the Jewish people and where they are today, uh, you're going to see more people who are religious in in Israel than probably any place on the face of the earth. But you're going to find almost nobody that's saved, except for the tourists. You're going to find all kinds of Christians that went there, but the people that live there, not so much. They're almost irreligious except for a very small handful of Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox Jews that live in Jerusalem. Most everybody else pretty much doesn't care about the things of God. They'll say they do. Historically, they say they do. But they're more concerned about how many people they can get onto the Mount of Beatitudes and if they can make a buck at it. And I don't mean to be you know, too pointed here, but that's the fact. You go to all these wonderful sites and you oh man, I just can't wait to go to the Mount of Beatitudes. I thought, I thought in my own heart, I'm like, man, I, I really want to go see the Mount of Beatitudes. And you get there, and it's like there's number one, there's eight thousand tour buses in the parking lot, 
and you pull up and you have to get permission to be able to sit on the steps in order to actually say anything. And then if you say something, you got to kind of keep it quiet because there's other people there. And there was basically nothing happening there. And you look at the shrines and you're going, man, this is really, really religious, but it's really, really lost. And so we have a parable. And so these three children kind of teach us a little bit about the grace of God. He's actually going to one day change their name, and we'll see that as we move through this book. And as Hosea is predominantly a prophet who's going to give us a lesson of love, we need to keep that in view. But it's not love absent truth. Remember our study in Ephesians? We just finished this passage of Scripture a few weeks ago. Speak you, therefore, the truth in love. We want to speak the truth, and we want to speak it in love, but you can't have love without truth, and you can't have truth without love. Those two go together. They, they must be coupled. And so what Hosea is saying here is you can keep doing what you're doing, but you're going to suffer the consequences of it. And so he doesn't minimize the holiness of God. God is love. And so this very first thing that we see that's problematic in the lives of the, of the Jewish people and in the lives specifically uh, of Gomer, this wife that he's now taken, he's got three basic sins, and he's going to focus in on those. And so as we do that, I want you to see that these things haven't changed much. Uh, idolatry is alive and well. We think of idolatry, we think of little tiny, you know, symbols or perhaps little, you know, clay dolls or brass gods or something that we could, you know, we go down to the enchanted crystal and we buy ourselves a little, you know, amethyst thing and we start to worship it or something. But idolatry comes in a lot of forms. And, and here what we see in the life of, of Gomer was her idol was her past. How many people's idol is their past. They live in the past. They never escape the past. They refuse to trust God with their future, and so they're stuck in their past. They idolize it. And in fact, very often, strangely, oddly enough, and as I said, don't judge her too harshly, we go back to that past because it's what we know. It's where we're comfortable I feel, I, these guys know me. They're party animals. I'll just go hang out with them. This person does the same thing I used to do, so I feel very comfortable. It's easy to run back to the idols. And in this case, pagan worship was surrounding the children of Israel. That's what they did. And for the most part, most of those pagan cults, the worship of Molech, the worship of Ashtaroth, the worship of Baal, all involved prostitution of some kind. Every one of them. And so to some degree, there was an association of God with evil. Isn't that where our world's at right now? Well, we'll just make everything legal. We'll just change the definition of marriage. We'll just make another law so that it's now lawful in the land to do whatever we want to do. You see, those laws don't change God's opinion. They don't change God's mind. The Supreme Court today, in striking down DOMA and striking down Proposition 8, which, by the way, 7 million of us Californians voted that law into as law, as they struck that down, they didn't strike down what this says. So you can do all that you want. The problem is you're going to suffer the consequences of not living the way God wants us to live. And that's the tragedy of it. That's the sadness of it. 
It was the same then, it's the same now. And basically, he's looking at this from a perspective of someone who wants to be right with the Lord. And I want to... I want to be careful because I don't want to bring anybody into bondage. And we're going to see this very clearly next week. God loves sinners. God loves sinners of every shape, flavor, and size. It doesn't matter what you're engaged in. God still loves sinners. But he absolutely hates sin. He absolutely hates sin. And that's why he declares those things which are or are not okay with him. And so when he does that, it doesn't matter what you pick on. As I've shared with you before, I think one of the problems of the church is hypocrisy. We need to point out all the things that are problematic as far as God's concerned. And so we can pick on the the divorced people who did not divorce for a biblical reason. We could throw out the drunkard or the the person who's a habitual drug abuser or the habitual thief or the habitual liar. It doesn't matter who you pick on. God still hates all those things. And so, do you really want to be engaged in something that God has openly declares he hates? That's where Gomer was. A godly guy is in her, in, in her life, and he wants to, in essence, be that shield and protect her from the things of the world. And she says, no, I'd rather keep my sin. That is a horrible, horrible, horrible place to be. But she's going to do it anyway. And so be careful as you look at this. You see, First John chapter 2 says that we're, we're not to be uh, of the world. We're not to be conformed to it, James says. We're not to be friends uh, of the world. That doesn't mean that we don't have friends who are in the world. That means we're not to be a friend of the world. The world is not your friend. This world and everything in it, your Bible says, is passing away. It's not friendly to the body of Christ. It's definitely at odds with. There is a deep sense of animosity that the world has towards the person who names the name of Christ. We have to remain true to our Hosea, Jesus. Because there's going to be competition. There are going to be all kinds of things that the world's going to throw out there. Oh, follow this. Follow that. Go after this. Go after that. Remember your old friends are still there. Just, you know, send a Facebook status update to that old boyfriend, that old girlfriend. They're still there. And remember how much they liked you? And then before you know it, you're right back in the same crowd you just got delivered from. We have been called to be holy To be holy means that we have one God. And that means that we worship one being in the entire universe. There's no room for another God. There's not not room for the God of alcohol. There's not room for the God of sexual promiscuity. There's not room for the God of drugs. There's not room for the God of materialism. There's not room for another God. And so what God's saying is, look, Here's the opportunity. You can escape this right here, right now. But the choice is yours. Don't follow after another God. This switches over in verse 5. And let's pick up there. To Israel's 
very treacherous lovers. And there are going to be two more things that we're going to see. And certainly these two things I have here, ingratitude and hypocrisy, are on the top of the list. For their mother has played a harlot. She who conceived them has behaved shamefully. Can you imagine what this would have been like for the kids? Yeah, that's my mom. I love her. She brought me into this world. But what a shame. For she said, I will go after my lovers. Notice the ingratitude here. Who gave me my bread and my water, my wool, my linen, my oil, and my drink. Family of God, throw that in parallel to the very things that that we struggle with today. How many people have sold their soul for oil and water and bread and drink and clothes and money and cars and houses and mortgages and you name it? Said, you know, I just I I'm gonna I'm gonna not follow the Lord. I'm gonna follow after these things. When the Lord God in heaven reached down from heaven and gave us his son and said, Here the most precious thing in the entire universe I give you to buy you back from those very things. And yet we follow right after the things that we've already been delivered from. And I want you to notice, and I think it's important to see, that there's actually some rationale in what she's doing. And I'm not trying to justify prostitution here either. But there is some rationale in what she's doing. It's what she knows. You have to remember the world at that time. The world at that time, probably 50% of it or so, and we're going to elaborate on this on Sunday, probably 50% or so were slaves. And there were slaves of all kind, including sexual slaves. Basically house girls, house guys, went both ways, by the, by the way. So she was comfortable there. To a certain degree. Seems insane to us. Seems absolutely crazy to us. But to her, not so much. She had her basic needs met. Taken care of. Wasn't great. But it was a whole lot better than being on a street corner someplace begging alms. At least she had a roof over her head. And so before we judge the sinner... Remember what drives people to sin. It's that lack of understanding of how much God loves them. She didn't know what it was like to be loved by a man. She knew what it was like to be used by a man. And so for her, I think this probably made more sense than it makes to us. But nonetheless, Hosea says, I'll take you in. Verse 6, therefore behold, I will hedge up your way with thorns. Doesn't God do that to us? Doesn't he make the way thorny? He doesn't let go of us easy, does he? Any of you ever been convicted of the things that are going on in your life and you know you're not supposed to do them and there's thorns down the whole path and you got them in your feet and on your legs and they're stuck in your hands and God's just poking you from every conceivable angle. It's like, you're going the wrong way. 
you're going the wrong way. Don't go that way. I'm going to make you go this way. And God is actually directing you to a single path that he wants you to walk on. And you're like, no, I'm going to go over here. And you're like, ow, 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 ow. And you, I'm going to go over here, ow, 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 ow. And before you know it, you're going, man, i got to spend a couple of days picking thorns out. God doesn't want you to step in the thorns. He's hedging you in so that you can see it's not a good place to go. If you've ever hiked up on Keller Peak, you know on the south side, it's like 100% buckbrush over there. White thorn, if you prefer. There's a reason they call it buckbrush. Deer are not stupid enough to try and walk through it. Okay? You're supposed to look at it and go, ah, thorns. You know, they're this long. They'll go like out your neck if you get one. It's like, ah. God's going, don't go in there. Don't go over there and wall her in so that she cannot find her past. God does that. You ever noticed? You ever wondered why when you first get saved? I can't believe it. God took that away. My friend moved. My old boyfriend, my old girlfriend moved. The bar shut down. Can't believe it. Things been there for 50 years. All of my very best times of throwing up were right there. And God shuts it down. It's the truth, isn't it? And God shuts all that stuff down. You're saying, oh, I'm, I'm mad at God. Then you think about what he took away. It's like, well, you know, probably should have done that. So that she can't find her paths. But she'll still chase her lovers. Isn't that crazy? We can know exactly what's coming. And we still do it anyway. That's the power of sin. Do not underestimate your enemy. Because he seeks to kill and maim and destroy. We're going to spend a whole Sunday here in two weeks on your adversary the devil. He wants to kill you. If he could do it right here, right now, that's exactly what he would do. Because he knows in Christ Jesus he ain't going to win. So he's going to try and make your life miserable. And so he's going to throw stuff up there that's going to be very attractive. He's going to pop old people and friends into your life. He's going to bring back old uh, habits and memories and just lay them right out before you. Yeah, go chase after that. But notice this. Because of grace, not going to overtake them. Yes, she'll seek them out, but not find them. And then she'll say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then it was better for me than now. And so she's, she's trying to, to make the old way work. And she's going to settle. You, you, you talk about the things that, that the Lord wants to do in your life. See, we all have these issues. There are things that come back that want to haunt us. The question is, are you going to give them up or are you going to chase after them? You're going to let them go and let God work in your life, or are you going to continue to follow after those things that will harm you? Because sin kills. The reason that it's called sin is because it comes from an English archery term, means to miss the mark. 
Sin is missing the mark. It's the thing. God says, here it is. This is where I want you to go. This is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to behave. These are the things that I want you to entertain. This is what I want you to see with your life. These things are good and pure and wholesome. They're of good report. Dwell on these things. Here's the mark. And you go, I ain't shooting there. It's like us guys. There's no guy in here that's ever owned a bow and arrow that hasn't stood out someplace open, pulled that thing back, and shot it straight up and see if you can stick it in your friend's head. That's called aiming at nothing and hoping for the best. Amen? That's what we used to do. I, I can't believe I actually lived through my childhood. It's like you got that, you know, that archery set for... Christmas, and you walk out, and in our, when I grew up, you could shoot guns in our front yard because there was nothing in Poway at the time. But we'd go out in the field, we'd take that bow, we'd pull it back as far as we could. <laughs> Couldn't even see it. It was out of sight, out of mind. Weren't aiming at nothing. And then we'd kind of, you see it? No, I don't see it. You see it? No, I don't see it. I think it's coming. No, I don't see it. And then all of a sudden, run! <laughs> like, Go bolting across the field in a cloud of dust. And you're like, wow, almost got us. And we thought that was somehow good. That's kind of us and sin. I don't know where it's going, but boy, I think it's going to be fun. We let it fly. It's like, it's coming. Oh, here it comes. Run. It's like, wow, I survived. I think I'll try that again. That's people with sin. Like, we know we could die doing it, and we still do it anyway. I'll give you a little, little hint. There's an ancient axiom made up by me some years ago. If you aim at nothing, that's what you'll hit. That's pretty much it. You've got to aim at God. He's the mark. He's the one we aim at. His qualities, His characteristics, His love, His gentleness... Meekness, self-control, all those things that Christ is. Now we see him beginning to act in in punishment, and then we'll see him act in pardon. But we're going to see several things as we finish this chapter up. Notice, picking up these divine I wills that happen beginning in verse 8, and therefore I will return and take away my corn, And I will discover her lewdness, and I will cause her mirth to cease, and I will destroy her vines, and I will visit upon her the days of Balaam. He says, in response to all this, and in response to this ingratitude, I'll just take the stuff away. I'll just remove it. It's no problem. You see, what he's really saying is, if you want to go that way, I'll let you go that way. That's not what I want for you, but I'll let you go that way. Verse 8, it says, For she did not know that I gave her grain and new wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. And therefore I will return and take it away for the grain in its time and my new wine in its season. And I'll take back my wool and I'll take back my linen and given those things that I've given to cover her nakedness. You want a case study in this? Go down to Costco. And watch those folks who are sitting in the median and watch when they go back to the little camps on the freeway right away. Most of those people were not always like that. 
They made choices in their lives that caused them to be in places that ultimately, God says, if that's what you want, that's what you get. If you want to be a crack addict for the rest of your life, I'm not going to stop you. If you want to engage in those behaviors, you want to make your living thieving, and I want to be careful, not everyone that's there is in that for that reason, but a vast majority of them are. And in fact, some pretty recent social studies done by our county says that a vast majority of those folks actually go back to it even if they're arrested and taken someplace. You, you see, a lot of times we're just ungrateful for the things that we have. You want to go make a different way? God will let you. God's given us the power to earn wealth. He's given us the ability to enjoy blessings. But we need to thank him for them. They're his. He gave it to us. And it, frankly, is ingratitude and wickedness to offer those things up to false gods. And that's what a lot of people do. They'll spend their money on virtually anything but those things which have to do with the Lord's work and the Lord's will and the Lord's way. They'll give it to every cause known to man. But to the Lord, nah, not going to do that. We're commanded over six, well, there's 16 times in the New Testament. There's probably another 40 or so in the Old Testament to give thanks unto the Lord. Why? It's not an option, by the way. It's to be an attitude. It's a heart that says, God, right now, if left to my own devices, nothing is exactly what I'd have. And instead, you've blessed me. Verse 10 goes on to say, on to say, Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall deliver her from my hand. So Hosea is saying, you know what? I'm going to follow her around. I'm going to make sure everybody knows what's going on. Guys, gals, men, women, God only lets us go so far. And then he lets loose with a volley of holiness. He just says, you know what, if that's what you want to do, everybody's going to know. In fact, his word says that those things which are done in secret one day will be shouted from the rooftop. So you can get away with it for a while, but not forever. And I will also cause her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, her Sabbaths, all her appointed feasts. You know, she'd gone after the false god. She's celebrating all the time. There was a new reason for a party every day as far as she was concerned. I'll destroy her vines, her fig trees, of which she has said, these are my wages that my lovers have given to me. It's another way of saying, I earned it. It's mine. Be careful about having an attitude that says anything that you have is yours, because it's not any of it yours. As a Christian, your Bible says that the things that you have still belong to God. Matter of fact, everything on this earth, whether everybody knows it or not, belongs to God. It's His. It's not yours to begin with. It's on loan from the Lord. And so long as you're using it properly for His glory, chances are He's going to bless you with those things, as Malachi 3 says, we test him in that. We say, Lord, yours. I'm giving it back to you. You do whatever you want. But if you think you made it, there will come a point in time when God will see to it that you understand very clearly that everything you have is his. 
And so I will make them a forest. The beasts of the field will eat them. I'll punish her for the days of the Baals to which she burned the incense. She decked herself with earrings and jewelry and went after her lovers. And she forgot me, says the Lord. It is a really, really horrible thing to forget the Lord, especially in his provision in our lives, and especially given what most of us have been saved from. There's a few folks in this room, nah, you're pretty close to Ozzy and Harriet and perfect. The rest of us, not so much. We need to remember that the Lord has saved all of us from something, and most of us from an awful lot of stuff. And then turned around and blessed us. Think about it. Rick and I were talking about that earlier this week, how God just blesses us. Just blesses us. We don't even know why he blesses us. He just blesses us. It's not because we deserve it. He just loves us. It is hypocritical. The Greek word that we have translated hypocrite in the New Testament is actually a word which means actor. You make a big show. Well, I earned this. It's mine. I have a right to do this. I can do whatever I want because I'm me. Not so much. There's not a person on this earth that made themselves. Amen? <laughs> there ain't one of us. There's nobody that's here that made themselves. You're all creations of God. Every last one of us. Lots of different shapes and sizes and colors and textures and heights and weights and everything else. But we're all God's kids. It is hypocrisy to tell God any different. God, I made my own way. I'm a self-made person. I'm a self-made man. If I made myself, it wouldn't be good. I can tell you that. It'd be really bad. So the Lord says, beware of idolatry, beware of ingratitude, beware of hypocrisy. The children of Israel have all that going on in their lives. Many people before they come to Christ, same story. And some of us, unfortunately, don't learn that lesson too well. And we continue to do it after we get saved. But fortunately for us, fortunately because God is who God is, we're going to see that he still loves us. Verse 14, and this is the shocker. In this particular chapter, having heard all of that, you kind of go, oh, man, it's kind of heavy. Yeah, it's kind of heavy. But when you figure out what God's response is to it, you're going, oh, thank you, God, for your love. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy. And therefore, behold, and I want you to just underline or circle or Put a line in the margin of your Bible if you don't like to mark up the text. Mark these I wills. Because there are six promises here that are the response of God to the hypocrisy, to the idolatry, to the shame that Gomer brought to the Lord. Now all we've heard so far is I'm going to go out my own way. I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to seek after these men. I'm going to go do what I'm not supposed to do, what I've been saved from. I'm going to leave my husband who loves me for the pure, simple fact that I want to go back to my old profession of being a prostitute. Here's God's response. 
And therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. I will give her vineyards from there, the valley of Achor as a door of hope. And there she shall sing. As in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt, and it shall be in that day, circle that, because it really is clear what this is actually alluding to eventually is nothing other than the day of the Lord. When all Israel is saved, says the Lord, that you will call me husband and no longer call me my master. You see, up to this point, because she's chosen to make it that type of relationship, it's basically master and slave. But that's not what God wants. You realize that God wants you to be his kids. His beloved wants you to be his bride, his cherished one. He doesn't want to have just a master slave. He could make us do anything. Amen? God's God. If God really wanted to, he could just get up in the morning. If God gets up in the morning, which I don't think he does. He never sleeps or slumbers. That's what your Bible says, so he does not sleep. So God, on what we call the morning of a day, comes wandering around, it's just like all of a sudden you are a robot. You're a complete automaton. You have no free will whatsoever, and you just go about your daily life, and you don't like anything that you're doing, but you do it automatically. Because God is sovereign, he could actually make us do that. He is all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's omniscient. He's everywhere at the same time. You're not going to be able to escape him. You're not going to outthink him. You're not going to come up with some way to get out of it. God could simply impress upon you for you to be holy every single day. You get up in the morning, all of a sudden, I am Mr. Holiness. You know, and you just go about your business and everything you do. Nice to meet you. I am holy. Get away from me, you sinner. You know, it'd be craziness. And absolutely no one would want to be around you. Amen? You'd be really holy, but you'd also be completely unrelatable. And so God in love gives you free choice, free will, and allows you to choose to love him. And allows you the beautiful volition of relationship. Because we have to choose to be in relationships. Amen? Nobody can force a relationship on you. They can't do it. It's an impossibility. You have to willingly accept whatever that relationship is, good or bad or indifferent. Even indifference is a part, is a relationship. You kind of not caring about something is actually relational. But you have the choice to be in those things or not in those things or be indifferent about those things. Can you imagine? God can make the entire universe that way because he's God. But notice the I wills. I will take from her mouth the names of the Baals. And they shall be remembered by their name no more. For in that day, again, circle that, because it gives you a clue as to when this is. That phrase is exclusively used in the Old Testament to refer to a day that is yet to come. In that day, the final day, the time called the, the times of the Gentiles, the day of Jacob's trouble, after the rapture of the church, during the tribulation, in that day, the day of the Lord, when God pours out his wrath on this earth, deals with sin once and for all. The church is home in heaven, getting ready to come back on some white horses. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field. And now we kind of get a picture that this is talking about a very specific part of in that day, because we call it the last days, the last times. 
specifically talking about the millennial reign of Christ because of what's said here. With the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, with the creeping things of the ground, with the bow and the sword of battle, and I will shatter it from the earth to make them lie down safely. Prophet Isaiah said the same thing. And I will betroth you to me forever. And yes, I'll betroth you to me. For in that righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. And it shall come, come to pass in that day that I will answer, says the Lord. I'll answer the heavens. I'll answer the earth. The answer shall be given with grain and new wine, with oil. They shall, they shall answer Jezreel. Jezreel also means to sow. With sowing. And then I will sow her for myself in the earth. And I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. And then I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they shall say, you are my God. Amen. You see what he's saying is to the nation Israel, you have the opportunity Notice these promises. Uh, I will allure you. God doesn't force that. That word allure means to woo. It's what we guys try and do when we're serious about marriage. That's called wooing. Sometimes it's ooing and, and gooing and some other ings and oos. But the, the whole point is to try and make you ladies. He is awesome. You know, kind of like some of those Old Spice commercials with the really buff guy on the, on the pony or whatever. I don't know. God's wooing. He's crying out to the nation Israel. He's been crying out to mankind since day one. He cried out to Adam and Eve, please don't do that. Of all the trees of the garden you may eat, but don't eat of this one. I'm wooing you. Look how much I love you. Can you imagine what that was like for Adam and Eve? Look how much I love you of everything that you can possibly see, no matter where you can wander, as far as you're concerned, the entirety of the earth is for you, except for that one tree right over there. And I'm going to set some angels to guard that one. And God woos. He allures. He'd been speaking tenderly to them. He speaks tenderly to us now. Notice the next promise. I will give. The Lord guarantees that they're going to be returned to their land. They're going to have their nation restored to prosperity. He changes the meaning of the name, and this time the Valley of Achor means trouble. And he changes it to the door of hope. That's a pretty big change, don't you think? goes from it's going to be trouble for you to it's going to be hope for you. That's what he does. Isn't that the way our life is? You can see the parallels in all three ways. The actual story of Hosea and Gomer the children of Israel, and what God will do in the last days, and us as we've already received these things by grace. What has not the Lord done for us? He's done everything. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Amen? We were going the wrong way, and Jesus is going, I'm over here. Open the door. I'll come in and sup with you. You with me. The Valley of Achor is mentioned in the 65th chapter of the book of Isaiah. And it says there, the Valley of Achor will be a place for the herds to lie down. And my people that have sought me shall lie there too. Hallelujah. 
The third promise, and I love this one. It says, I will take away. God declares, I'll take away all temptation. I'm going to take away even the possibility. Man, is anybody else looking forward to that day when there's no more temptation? Of any kind, there will be no in and out. Sorry, there, there can't be because I can't handle it, okay? Maybe you all can, but because I can't, there can't be any temptation. I would just go into a coma in heaven. You'd see me sitting over there someplace with a double-double the size of Texas. I will take away. He's going to end the idolatry. He's going to end the rule of the Baals. They'll never be named again. And it's the name change here is very, very distinct. He says, I will change you to the name Ishi. Ishi means husband. He said, I'm going to be your husband. We're going to change things. Both both these two names, Bali and Ishi, were used uh, by Jewish wives in addressing their, their husbands, but they were always in the future. He's going to take away those things so that you, you're not going to struggle like you do now. And I can't wait. There's going to be no Harleys revving their motor outside my window. I'm not going to be tempted to go find one of my guns and have an accidental discharge. I was cleaning it. Don't know why it hit his motor, but it just happened. I won't even think that. Fourth promise. I will betroth. You, you see, as God begins to say, I will allure, he says, I'll also follow this all the way through and I'll be betrothed to you. And that means promised. It's awesome. I, I'm going to promise myself to you. And, and it, that actually is really what the new covenant was about for the Jewish people. God made a promise, didn't he, to the Jewish people? He said, you are my people and I am your God. And he's going to make good on that promise. Right now that promise goes unfulfilled still to this day. And we'll see this very clearly in the next chapter. He's going to restore his creation. Right now, the creation is a mess. Amen? You all know I'm not a big fan of the global warming theories because I think they're largely inflated, and we've gone through cycles like this, and scientifically we can prove that. But I do believe we've been a horrible steward of this earth, and we have destroyed much of what God intended to be wonderful and beautiful and clean, and it drives me nuts. I go to the Sierras, and I look at trash in the creeks, and I'm just like, who did this? I am absolutely hate the fact that we've destroyed the earth. But one day, God's going to restore it. Because you know what? I didn't do that. I have never done that. Not once in my entire time of going to the high Sierras have I ever been responsible for throwing a single piece of trash into a creek. Ever. And I've pulled out a lot of other people's trash. But one day, he's going to make it all good. The way he intended it. And I can't wait. If it's this good now, can you imagine how good it will be then? Because it's pretty nice now, still. As messed up as we are, it's still pretty nice. You drive in through the tunnel into Yosemite Valley on a beautiful spring day before the smoke and the smog sets in that comes out of the Central Valley, and you look up and the waterfalls are flowing, you're going like, this is heaven. It's going to be better than that. That's what we do for our spouses, don't we? When you say... Will you marry me? And the answer is yes. You pull out all the stops. There's no price that won't be paid. You know, you're going to spend the whole 12 bucks you have in your checking account. All of it. Every last cent. 
I think that's an exaggeration of what Connie and I had when we got married. But <laughs> Lord, we pray for Rick right now. <laughs> Give him 13, God. <laughs> and among those wedding gifts that, that we're going to get, from the Lord. It's going to be righteousness and justice. Man, I yearn for justice. I, I got a letter from one of our missionaries, and I'm looking at these poor kids in South Sudan and Uganda. And, and I mean, there's times I just can't do it. I mean, I, I, I look at these photos of these kids, and it's just like, Lord, how could you let this happen on this earth? I don't blame God, but it's just like, I can't believe that He's got that much patience and grace and mercy with people on this earth to let let each other, us, we, take advantage and, and abuse and harm other people. The way it happens on this planet, that's going to go away someday. Love, compassion, faithfulness will rule the day. That's what we get because he is betrothed to us. He's promised us that. Guys, you want to ruin your marriage, promise your wife something and don't follow through with it after the wedding day. You want to ruin your marriage, that'll do it for you. Good news, God will not make a promise he won't keep. So if his word says it, he's going to do it. The fifth promise, I will respond. You talk about a cosmic conversation between God. He's going to hear from heaven. Right now, I wonder sometimes if he's listening. That's just me personally. I know he is. Intellectually, I know he is. Spiritually, I know he is. By his word, I know he's listening to absolutely everything. But there are times it's like, God, why don't you just deal with that? Why don't you make good right now on the promise that you said you're going to wipe out all evil one day? Just do it. It's called grace. I'm glad God didn't do that in my life because there's definitely been points in time in my life when God would have been absolutely just in taking me from this earth and he would have saved people pain. Thank you, Jesus. But one day he's going to respond. He's going to restore the universe the way he wanted it in the beginning and he's going to undo what we have done to it. And that means the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem, all of them, are one day coming. And then finally, he says, I will plant. And that image kind of restores this picture that we have of Jezreel, the first of these kids. The valley of Jezreel is the valley of Armageddon. The valley of Jezreel is going to be a place of unbelievable slaughter. But he says, one day I will plant. I'll sow. He's going to bring the whole world into that Unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Man, that's going to be an awesome day. One of the things that it just it makes me sad. I've traveled a lot. I've been all over the world. And it is mind-boggling to me. When you get people one-on-one, I've found very few people that I can't get along with. But the immense amount of hatred that is built up in the world system where groups of people influence other groups of people to do despicable things to other groups of people is part of the world system. 
God intended for us to be loving and kind and generous and caring. All those things. But the problem is, is we don't walk in the truth. And without the truth, that becomes an impossibility. And so as we walk in truth, we're able to fulfill those things that are the character and nature of God. And one day he's just going to sow that into the whole world. He'll say, you are my people, and I am your God, and these old ways are gone. That is getting to know God. We see both sides of him. We see he doesn't overlook sin, but we see he wants to restore. We see that he's absolutely holy, but he's also very gracious. We see the truth spoken in love. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you, in your marvelous grace, just shower us with love. Lord, we pray that you'd cause us to be doers of the word, not hearers only. We pray that we'd also be loving and kind while being truthful. We pray that you'd watch over and keep us, God, as we spend the rest of this week doing the things that you've laid out for us. Lord, we pray that wherever we go, the image of Jesus would go with us. Lord, give us a heart after your heart. Give us a mind that thinks the way you think. Cause us to love one another. Cause us to love the lost. Lord, cause us to to be worried about the things that you're concerned with. Lord, help us to keep our eyes focused on heaven from whence our help comes. Lord, we bless you. We thank you. We praise you. We ask all this in the precious, precious name of Jesus. Amen. Next week, Hosea chapter 3 and the love of God. Amen.